This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Welcome back to Preble Hall, the podcast of the U.S. Naval Academy Museum. My name is John Sherwood, and I'm a historian with the Naval History and Heritage Command. With me today is Dr. Cameron McCoy. Dr. McCoy is the author of the new book, Contested Valor, African-American Marines in the Age of Power, Protest, and Tokenism. He holds a PhD in history from the University of Texas at Austin. He's also a Marine Lieutenant Colonel and a student in the Advanced Strategist course at the Naval War College. In part one of this interview, Dr. McCoy discussed the history of African-American Marines during World War II and Korea. Today, in part two, we will focus on the post-Korean War period and Vietnam. Before we start, I should state that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewer and guest and do not represent those of the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Marine Corps, the United States Naval Academy, the Naval War College, or the DOD. Dr. Cameron McCoy, welcome back to Preble Hall. Thanks for having me back again, John. It's a pleasure. So I'm going to dive into sources of discrimination during the Cold War. And I want to focus on two issues in particular. I want to focus on the draft and the armed forces qualification test. Let's talk about the draft first, the Cold War draft. The draft itself during the era that we're walking into, I mean, really starts taking effect just in the early 60s and really is a, is a nuclear hot button for the United States period. I mean, black, white, Latin, Asian, it doesn't matter. This is affecting everyone. When I look at it, it's so interesting that you use the word how the Cold War draft just could did discriminate against African-Americans. So the United States have fought forever to keep them out. <laughs> Everything to do to keep them out of the military. Then Vietnam hits. <laughs> They're coming directly to Black communities and Black populations and saying, you have to serve. <laughs> And in addition to that, we're going to put you in combat roles <laughs> right on the front lines. And so this is where we see in U.S. history the shift uh, that takes place. And really the draft really is, I, I don't want, I don't like using this word, but I cannot think of another word, maybe honing in or I don't want to say targeting, but definitely honed in on any type of dodging and and black and brown communities, whereas whites end up finding an avenue of how not to go to Vietnam through the National Guard, the reserves, and these access points become uh, more narrow for for, uh, black and brown communities. If, If we are using the word discriminate, that's how I see it being systematic in its approach to, and it specifically, as, as you stated, the draft itself is being systematic in how it's targeting Black and Brown communities. And we see that even more manifested in just the testing, as you mentioned earlier. They're receiving lower scores, uh, so they can't get into the high technical MOSs, uh, military occupational specialties, such as Intel, Intel, and becoming a pilot. The draft itself, the draft boards were more willing to give whites deferments, whether for medical reasons or education or or otherwise. And one statistic that I think is incredible is that in 1968, so the height of the Vietnam War, Blacks represented 9.8% of the armed forces, but 20% of infantry units and 14.1% of those killed. That shows how the draft was unfairly targeting minority communities. Do you want to comment some more? I mean, you already did comment a bit on that. What I found in this instance with the draft that really stood out to me was just how this seemed very blatant, right? And I mean, Black and brown people become really just this very fungible during the Vietnam War. Right. Uh, they're being replaced and exchanged. Their lives are 
not at a premium, but just really expendable. And when I see that, a lot of it has to do with the population in the United States at that time was roughly 10% African-American. And so that representation really is translated into the armed forces and almost all the branches, not just simply the Marine Corps. In almost the same percentages where 10% are represented. But yet on the front lines, right, the uh, numbers rise. And where I want to be very careful when addressing that is Blacks are of a smaller population, you know, a minority population within the service. So those numbers are going to look so much bigger. They're going to just look that much bigger. But uh, whites are also being killed at percentages equal to or higher than at the same time. But the numbers just seem to scream out louder given the proportionality of Blacks on the front lines and Blacks in each service component. In my own research on Blacks in the Navy in Vietnam, I wrote a book called Black Sailor, White Navy, Racial Unrest in the Fleet During the Vietnam War Era. I learned that test scores on the Armed Forces Qualification test were an issue with black sailors. So black sailors often did not have high enough scores to break into many ratings. Consequently, many black sailors ended up in the deck force, the mess decks, or the laundry, basically the same jobs their fathers held in World War II. And it was not until Admiral Elmo Zumwalt became the CNO that the Navy made a concerted effort to give black sailors the sort of academic and technical training necessary to break into certain ratings. Did you find this to be true in the Marine Corps as well? How, how was the AFQT a manifestation of institutional racism? In the Navy, the draft compelled highly qualified white people to seek out jobs that were safe. So I interviewed Admiral John Harvey, who is a former Fleet Forces Command, and he said that when he was on the the Enterprise, the, the carrier, he got to the engineering department and there were numerous uh, sailors with master's degrees, numerous sailors. I think he said he had 32 sailors who had college degrees in that department. Whereas in infantry units in the Marine Corps or on the mess decks or the deck force, that's where you you had African-Americans. And it really began to look for both races that the, the Navy had a, a rather segregated system, even though Truman, of course, had ended segregation in the armed forces. So it was a combination of these test score of the, the testing system and the draft that, that sort of exacerbated these problems. Yeah, uh, John, you bring up some excellent points with that. And what I've observed from that is you're seeing a carryover, or at, at least the armed forces are now manifesting what the civilian world looks like. So blacks are not excelling in academics or education outside of the military. Therefore, it's just a, simply a carryover because they're not as, as educated on the civilian side. So they're not going to all of a sudden be able to receive jobs or be put into positions that require a high, like we like to say with the G2, right? Um, uh, and, and to be technical in their jobs because they're not receiving that level of education. And while higher education is at a premium uh, more so than ever at that time. And I like what you talked about. You said many of the white soldiers, sailors, marine, uh, Marines are receiving educational deferments, but Blacks are, just don't have access to that level of education that can put them in a position, especially when it comes to standardized tests that are tailored by and made for whites to excel to some extent. I'm not saying that Blacks are not doing the same thing, but it takes an exceptional Black person to be able to score well, whereas it just takes a normal white person to score well. The Black has to be exceptional in that test taking where a white is just, no, this is just a normal educational standard, a normal educational framework in which I functioned in for 17, 16 years. But for Blacks, it takes an inordinate amount of effort and practice and focus to be able to just score in regular percentiles as their white counterparts. With the Naval Academy in particular, the sort of the initial 
cadre of black midshipmen, many of them received their high school education. They came from all over the country, but they were sent essentially to be boarders and live in Washington, D.C. and go to Dunbar High because Dunbar High School was one of the few black high schools in America that could give these kids the academic preparation they needed to A, get accepted to the Naval Academy, and then B, make it through a very, very difficult curriculum. Charles Bolden, who I interviewed a couple of weeks ago, he was fortunate to go to essentially the same type of magnet school in Columbia, South Carolina, and to receive an education good enough to get into the Naval Academy. And we're not even talking here about the Naval Academy. We're talking about receiving a high school education good enough so that you can get into desirable ratings rather than serve in the infantry or serve in the laundry on, a, on an aircraft carrier. We see the residual effects of that even, even today when it comes to pilots. Uh, we see that with, you know, and Charles Bolden is an exception when it comes to that. And I mean, in his own right, and an example for many to strive for, but the road to get to a smooth path is mountainous, right? Like j just the road to get to the smooth path is mountainous, right? And it's filled with so many obstacles that it really takes the help of someone looking out and saying, okay, we need to give this person an opportunity, right? They have proven that they are worthy of the shot, right? They're not giving it to them. They're proving that they are worthy of this shot and they have done what, what is necessary. But when it comes to these standardized tests, historically, Blacks just had not performed well on them. And then they're facing the exact same issue coming into the Vietnam War. And with the officer corps, the problem was even more exacerbated. I, I was reading in your book that between 1965 and 1970, Blacks represented 10% of the enlisted Marine Corps strength and only 1% of the officer corps. I was further shocked to learn that there were never more than 15 Black field grade officers during the during the Vietnam War. And for our listeners who don't know what a field grade officer is, it's a major lieutenant colonel or colonel. Your book points out that between January and August of 1969, Camp Lejeune alone reported 136 assaults involving Blacks and whites. That's an astounding figure. Did, did the fact that there were so few Black officers in the ranks contribute to that racial unrest that occurred at Lejeune? There are a lot of things at play, John, during this period. Number one, Vietnam is not a popular war. That's first and foremost. Number two, and I don't want to jump ahead or get off course, but this is a very important feature, <clears throat> is you have the civil rights movement and the Black Power movement all in tension at this time with the war. You have people like Muhammad Ali who are protesting the war. So going into the Marine Corps is probably one of the least attractive career opportunities that Blacks are willing to investigate at that time. So let me just put that out there. Right? I don't want to assign any blame to the Marine Corps saying that it, despite all evidence pointing to being a very bigoted organization, that it just wouldn't allow them to progress. So that in and of itself is what highlights just the times right? That's the zeitgeist of the era. So 15 Black uh, field grade officers, that is extremely low, right? Those ranks are very difficult to get to even for the best white Marines. So this is not something that is uncommon, uh, but I like what you said even more. The fact that there are still no Black generals at the time where the army had its first Black general in 1944, that stands out more than anything else. And what makes the 15 Black field grade officers worse is that they're only 15. And what that does is the air is already thin just to get to colonel. The air is thinner to get to flag officer. And by flag officer, I mean general officer ranks. But you only have 15 of these people who are, who are in existence at that time who could potentially have an opportunity at that. And to be get promoted to general is less than 1%. So you're slicing that number 
even more in half that maybe one of those gentlemen at the time could make it. And so that's what I, I find that the extension to general officer is what is more revealing because you only have 15. And you're, the assumption would have to be that they are high performing. And we know out of 15 people, maybe five may be good, good performers and maybe one might be an excellent performer. And still, even if you're doing everything right, it doesn't lend itself to being selected as a general officer. And I would count 06 full bird colonel in that, right? Like that's also, although a field grade rank, uh, we understand that one to be a VIP level rank in all service branches. It is astounding and it does make you pause but when you think about the era, when you add all of those elements and tensions between communism, capitalism, civil rights movement, black power movement, and just the unpopularity of fighting in an unpopular war, that adds to that. And I think sometimes that needs to be taken into consideration. The Navy was a place where a lot of white kids with high scores enlisted into to avoid combat in Vietnam. And as a consequence, the percentage of Blacks in the Navy was very low until the draft ended in the early 70s. Long story short, the Navy didn't experience racial unrest to a serious degree until the early 70s, whereas the Marine Corps and the Army, because the draft was targeting them for line units in Vietnam, experienced it much earlier in, in 1968, 1969, that period. And there are certain incidents such as the assassination of Martin Luther King that precipitated racial unrest in Vietnam. Certainly the, the dearth of Black officers and probably the dearth of senior Black NCOs as well was a contributing factor, but also the civil rights movement, the long, hot summers, other other factors in society. Can you address the racial unrest issue in Vietnam and the causes and the consequences of it for the Marine Corps? Yes, the Marine Corps still had not adequately resolved what it meant to have Black men matriculate into the Marine Corps. Okay, what exactly are we supposed to do with them? Some are very smart, some are not as smart. And this is across the board. This has nothing to do with with skin, but has everything to do with how is it that the Marine Corps is going to make the decision? Black men are no longer a problem. Let me define the word problem. Something that doesn't have to be addressed on a daily basis and is linked to disorder lack of unit cohesion. Why are we getting in fights and why is there friction? So that's how I'm going to define the word problem in this context. The Marine Corps just doesn't know how to deal with that. And so it ends up creating and establishing an HR program deliberately focused on role playing. And it starts to put whites in the shoes of black men and black men in the shoes of whites. And really, that's where the frustrations begin to emerge. There are also cultural differences and generational differences, intra-racial issues among Northern Blacks, Southern Blacks. So two things that I just highlighted as cultural differences. So just two different cultures are clashing within an already exacerbated war that has the entire United States clashing. So the cultures are different. There's no Ebony magazine, Jet magazine on the shelves for them. Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver can't be sold. It's a banned book in uh, basic exchanges for the Marine Corps. And then from a generational standpoint, we talked about the Korean War earlier and World War II. You have a lot of veterans who served in those. And they are keeping their mouths shut because they're saying, this is a career for me. I, I do not want to mess it up. And these young bucks are coming in. And they are seeing life very different. And they're not turning the other cheek. They have the clenched power fist. And they are saying, no, Black power, Black is beautiful. Some of them are members of the Nation of Islam. And they are coming in and will not be pushed around. It becomes this cocktail of various options. And Blacks are trying to decide 
which side to be on at the same time while trying to maintain a career and fighting against the man. And why can't I have my hair cut like this? And why can't anyone cut my hair the right way as a black man? And they're seeing through this W.E.B. Du Bois lens of double consciousness of fighting, being a black person and then fighting and then also trying to be an American. The justice system was very biased uh, against African-Americans. And you have some stats. You say, you're while Blacks made up 9.3% of the military population during the Viet- Vietnam War, they comprised nearly 50% of the confined population in Vietnam. And that makes sense because one of the one of the mo- the biggest race riots in Vietnam was in a jail was in the Long Ben jail which was an army stockade in Long Ben Vietnam i found that a lot of a lot of racial incidents often resulted from mistreatment by the justice system did you find that to be the case yeah, I definitely found the justice system to be short on patience and long on punitive action uh, more than anything else. And what I what I didn't find was that it was actually targeting blacks, but the outcomes were so skewed. It definitely took advantage of its opportunities, maybe to maybe to remind black men at this time that. You are. You need to be eradicated, at least from a, a judicial standpoint, and almost compelled to get out of the military, because the military is increasing in its benefits plan, its compensation packages, and this is something again that highlights what it means to be a first-class citizen. And you just have these hardliners, these hard segregationists who really do believe that they can restore this golden era of bigotry back in the Marine Corps. And you see that just pop up time and time again, and they want it to represent what the civilian sector looks like. So they're trying to balance the status quo in the civilian world with the military world. And the treatment is just the same. And it's just a balancing act between attitudes and not perceptions, but perspectives on where whites belong and where blacks belong. The Naval Academy during this latter Vietnam War period finally started producing a number of black officers who who became quite famous. We mentioned Charles Bolden. Are there some others that you can highlight? He was the most prominent one who I came across. You know, his story is the one that really stands out. And it's really amazing for me how we have not done more to to highlight his life. He, he's so significant. He's a, from everything I've read about him, I sat through and went through the entire transcript of his interview for the Marine Corps History Division. And he just seems like an incredibly humble servant leader. Uh, again, I do not, I know you, you've had contact with him and know him, but I, I mean, I don't know him very, I don't know him at all, but just based on his accomplishments, his records, and what the consensus is about how people speak about him. And he just is an incredible individual. I do, I do not know many prominent uh, Black Naval Academy graduates. I know I do know Black officers in the Marine Corps now who are Naval Academy graduates, but they may not be, they, they surely have, have some runway in front of them to achieve the same level of prominence as Charles Bolton. So for our listeners who don't know who, uh, Charlie Bolden is. He's a 1968 graduate of the Naval Academy. He went on to fly 100 combat missions in Vietnam with the Marine Corps and then became a pioneering astronaut uh, for the Marine Corps and finally ended his career as the administrator of NASA, the National Air and Space Administration, during President Obama's tenure. Incredible guy. One story that just really still just sticks into me that he told me is that his father and mother, who are professionals, they were teachers, were driving him up to the academy, the Naval Academy. So here's a young man who's going to serve his country, who's going to fly in combat, he's going to be an astronaut, he's going to graduate from the Naval Academy. 
they stop at a Howard Johnson's in the Washington DC area and they go in to have a meal. They're tired. They've been on the road for a long time. And the manager comes out and says, we can't serve you. And this is, this is in the sixties. We can't serve you because they were black. And he said, but we can, but you can come around the back and we'll give you food and you can eat it in your car. That just blew my mind that someone like that, a family like that could be treated so poorly. And the thing is, John, that wasn't a long time ago. That was only 60 years ago. <laughs> that was not a long time ago. You talk about uh, a black Marine who was in uniform and, and basically beat up severely just because the, he was in a Marine uniform and people just couldn't handle that fact that he was in a Marine Corps uniform. So you, you might be look, conflating maybe uh, this story of Norman Payne and then uh, Edgar Huff. So Ed, Edgar Huff ended up having his uniform stripped off of him in Christmas. He was going to go visit his mother and he had to go, they end up putting him in jail. And then you have Sergeant uh, Woodward, who's world, who's also World War II, who gets blinded. Ryan Truman exclaims, what? You know, how did this happen? But yeah, um, Edgar Huff gets put into, uh, he's in prison during Christmas. And uh, he is trying to get out. A Marine officer shows up. They ask him, hey, you know, we found this guy impersonating a Marine. He has a uniform. They, you know, they they find out, and this Marine officer walks in and says, "Excuse my language, but he he says, hey, there are no nigger Marines,' and they just leave, and he's stuck there. Right, he doesn't have any clothes on. He's just stuck in jail. Finally, he gets released. But I mean, those are the challenges that Black Marines had to deal with at that time. Uh, I, I I'm sure John he did get beat. <laughs> I don't know how severely, but I'm sure he did get beat. Yeah, you mentioned this was, we're, we're kind of jumping around in time, but this was during the World War II period that Black Marines traveling home on liberty in uniform really had to fear for their lives at times. And yeah, I mean, it's just, and Samuel Woods, Colonel Samuel Woods, who was the the commander of Montford Point at the time, I mean, he really had his hands full in trying to manage not just the military aspects of, of what it means to be a commander, which are plentiful, but he also had to try to balance just race relations all at the same time. And he really had to come to grips with having to trust Black Marines. Right? Because, and I know, again, I know we're jumping back just a little bit, but I think this is important for context. You know, by 1943, Montford Point is running, is being run by Black Marines at this time. But when we look at just the presence of Black Marines and what they've represented, when we look at how you brought up uh, Charles Bolden, right, it's just, you ask a question about how the Marine Corps go about recruiting Black officers, right, and, and how significant was the Naval Academy in that effort? That The latter part, I don't know the answer to, but the recruitment really rested in the hands of other Black officers, who went in the Marine Corps and they're going out to historically black colleges and universities to try to recruit. And you have white officers really leaning on them because they're feeling the pressure of what you mentioned earlier about representation. And I'm not sure how heavy that was or how, how significant that was, but they have to rely on black first lieutenants and captains to get out to these HBCUs to really bring Black officers in. And really, that's the only avenue that many of the Black officers of that generation have is through HBCUs. So they're going to these historically Black colleges, universities to get into the Marine Corps because, right, you brought, John, you brought up earlier that just the challenges of getting a good education to be able to be admitted into a Notre Dame, right, or USC, right, are very challenging for them. So those who do make it these pioneers, these black pioneers who do make it through the officer corps, right? They end up becoming the standard bearers of, of what it means to be a Marine. And they end up facing challenges as well, right? Because the war has prompted many black people to think that they are sellouts because they're fighting a white man's war. Did Prairie View University, which was a 
pioneering in in ROTC Naval Reserve Officer Training Corps unit produced a lot of famous black naval officers did it produce some famous black marine officers as well i know prairie view prairie view a&m did have black officers i'm drawing a blank right now on any who stood out you, you had savannah state that had some that i know right off the top of my head you had and actually i remember notre dame standing out which is why i mentioned that school where there were black officers who who went there but uh, really, I'm not. I can't connect them all right now. But I do know that that was the primary pool, and I do know that as Black Marines entered entered the Marine Corps and were commissioned, right, they were able to carry with them lessons learned from being at you know a predominantly white institution or a PWI, and lessons they learned from being at a HBCU. And what that meant for them in their interaction with enlisted Marine. And so they really were able to grasp the culture of being Black. And that just because someone was doing a long handshake, they called a dap. And they were holding up the chow line, right? A Black officer like, listen, fellas, cut it out. Come on. We got to move. Do not bring more trouble on yourself than you need to. Let's limit the visibility uh, for me to have to you know, act out on my officer of the day duties. And so at least that measure of relief was there for for Black Marines when they did see another Black officer. And it did give them, it was a source of pride for many of them just to be able to see that and know that, okay, this guy does understand my plight, but he's not going to go easy on me. I mean, we see that in, in one of the stories that I that I, I share about a prominent uh, three-star uh, general and, and and what his encounters were. How did the Marine Corps uh, improve itself with respect to race relations following the end of the Vietnam War? The Navy, we had Admiral Zumwalt and to to a certain degree, his successor, Admiral Holloway. They implemented a lot of programs, not just uh, racial awareness training, but serious effort by the Naval Academy, by the NROTC units, with the A schools, enlisted training, to try to get African-Americans into officer roles, into certain ratings where they're, they were uh, underrepresented, uh, these programs. Uh, what did the Marine Corps do to try to, to improve the situation or the, the plight of the Black Marine? They tried, I mentioned earlier, they tried to do, they had some reform programs by 1969, these ad hoc committees that were put together to really evaluate how language is used, right? And they end up coming down and saying, hey, don't talk using this, these slang terms towards each other. And what I, what I found very interesting was Black enlisted and white enlisted Marines actually had no issues with calling each other names, right? Like it, it, it wasn't an issue for them. They, it was like, hey, this is how we get along. This is how we jive. You know, this is how we connect. But the Marine Corps really, so they jump in, right? The leadership jumps in and dis disrupts the camaraderie that these white and black Marines have just built. So you're like, hey, we just built camaraderie through <laughs> inappropriateness, which Marines do. And then what... <laughs> They're stuck with the, are these programs in which they're trying to say, okay, like, what does it mean to be a Black Marine at this? Like, how does one example is there's a first lieutenant, a white first lieutenant who's from Seattle, Washington, and he gets asked a question about what would you do if you saw a Black Marine with a white woman? And he's like, I wouldn't like that at all. Right. And then these conversations then go back around to 1915, release the birth of a nation, <laughs> what a Black man represented in America. Uh, during this civil war period, and now jumping back, every period is always war elicits these conversations about how to deal with, again, I use the word problem, like when does the black man stop being a problem, as, as I define problem. And so they're trying to have these different meetings that address all of these issues that hinge on black and white relations in public. Less so in the less so in the Marine Corps and in the military because there's just a hierarchy based on rank. 
Now, how we treat people, right, is just based on if you can see yourself in a subordinate or if you can see yourself in a senior officer, right? That does taint the lens in which we behave. And so you're dealing with that. But I mean, we really don't see, I think uh, it's, it's not until we get to General uh, Lewis H. Wilson Jr., who becomes Commandant of the Marine Corps, right? He He's the one who really begins to kind of modernize the Marine Corps off the Vietnam model, right? He's the 26th Commandant of the Marine Corps, right? From 1975 to 1979, he's the Commandant. He's the one who's really taken a more scrutinized look at race relations, but the Marine Corps still is not getting it right in the ways that they would like to. And so they're still struggling with this. They're still struggling with how to get Black officers. I mean, it's John is still an issue today. It hasn't changed. And we're still seeing that today, right? And it's tough to retain Black talent, tough to retain African Americans who really want to use the Marine Corps, you know, as a home, as a career. So these legacies remain. I, I was a battalion commander a year ago. And I remember going places and just being a lieutenant colonel. People are like, whoa, whoa, holy cow. I've never seen a black lieutenant colonel. And they're like, well, what's your job? It's like infantry. They're like, wait, what? You're you're the first black infantry officer I've ever seen, right? And you, for me, it's just comical, right? It just, I always smile. And then I, later I reflect, well, thank heavens You know, I wasn't an a-hole in that moment, right? Because then that captures how you classify Blacks. But the Marine Corps has still continued to struggle with that. I mean, even uh, General Berger, right, in 2019, excuse me, 2020, he has to discuss Confederate paraphernalia. So it's like, oh my goodness, right? You're, You're looking at Marine Corps leadership and it's just difficult for them to understand it. Now, the easy answer, John, you may say, well, why don't we promote more Black generals, right? <laughs> Easier said than done. And then you have to ask yourself the question, are there Black generals who are interested in having to address this and having to deal with it? And I think that's the deeper question. Speaking of firsts, you mentioned that some of your colleagues were flabbergasted that you were an African-American infantry lieutenant colonel. Are you the first African-American Marine officer to receive a PhD? I will say this in the 20 years, no, the 21 years that I've been in and been commissioned also, I've not met another Black Marine infantry officer with a PhD in history. I have not. I have not met a, a Black officer who had a PhD I have met Black officers who hold JDs, who have law degrees. I have met them. And uh, one is a general officer, and he's Black. Uh, and so Tony, Tony Henderson. And so he, I do know him, but as far as PhDs go, I, I, I don't know any. And the reason I say that, John, is because sometimes you have these things. When you go on a, on a promotion board, they release these stats, and I've always looked when I've been on boards, I've always looked. And when I've been the one, I've been the only one just with a PhD on that board who got selected for promotion I, from that standpoint. And I've gone down the list. I've just, there's only just been me typically on, on that list. And I've known, I've known one other, he's not black, but I do know another uh, Marine infantry officer who does have a PhD. And matter of fact, I take that back. I know two. And one's a lieutenant colonel with me. We were both battalion commanders at the same time. I won't mention his name because he doesn't know I'm doing this. And I won't mention the other guy. He's selected for 06, but both are white and they both hold PhDs, not in history, but they do hold PhDs. But as far as black Marines, I, I've i never come across one uh, throughout my 21 years of commission service, going on 22 years of commission service. I've never met one. Oh, you're asking deep questions on that one, John. That was a really deep one. You caught me off guard on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just it just hit me right right then and there. A statement in your book that really resonated with me was African Americans and Native Americans 
are the two major groups in the history of the United States who had the extreme responsibility of fighting for recognition as human beings. Not only did they have to fight for our country, they had to fight for recognition as human beings. Why did it take, this is a big question, African-American participation in the American Revolution, the Civil War, World War I, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, and perhaps subsequent wars to achieve this end. Why, why, what aspects of the US military system had fueled this institutional racism for so many years? Yeah, yeah, no, and, and it's an outstanding one. I would, and I, the first thing that went through my head is manifest destiny, American exceptionalism, those sort of constructive features in American life. And when you have a Judeo-Christian bedrock that has a prominent religious figure or deity that looks like a particular group, right, then the effect is that whoever doesn't look like that is not in, in favor. And that's a really, that's a really strong stance, I understand. But if you think about our oaths of office, our oaths of enlistment, and where they originate from, right? you see where the religious component <laughs> ties into that. And what that says about a nation in bringing light and being a city upon the hill by John Winthrop in the 1620s of what that represents. And to have to even attempt to put a, a black or brown face as a prominent feature and example of what excellence looks like. People tend to think that will rob the white community of its contributions. And I wanna be very careful with my words as I say this, but I think that is just like coming out groups of bondage and groups that have been conquered are very difficult, are very difficult to place in seats of prominence. And I use that word on purpose. I think about, it is very difficult for, there's a difference between when you are conquered, right? And then when you come into a nation where you might be a minority, but you were never conquered. And so <laughs> Blacks in the eyes of, it, of American history were conquered. And so now, they're coming out of being conquered, which demonstrates that they were in theory because a superior foe took them down. Whereas if you emigrate here and you just happen to be a minority, the stigma of being conquered is, is not stuck with you, right? You don't have that stink on you. Whereas I think Blacks continue to carry that, Native Americans continue to carry that. And you have these frameworks of segregation that have not aided in that segregation for Blacks and then you have reservations for Native Americans. And so you have these populations who have been deliberately segregated. That is a visible sign of them being conquered that are tough for many people to get past, even within those two communities themselves. It reminds me of a phrase quoted in Eric Foner's book, Reconstruction, unfinished revolution, the bottom rail is now on top. And that, I think, has been a very tough pill for the majority population in this country to swallow. I think reading your book shows that very well. I'll end this podcast with a film analogy. I was just up at the Naval War College, and I sat in on Dr. Wadley, Ryan Wadley's class, and he loves to bring film analogies into his lectures because he has an interest in the history of film. Uh, there was a 1982 film, not the greatest film, but a film called An Officer and a Gentleman with Richard Gere, Deborah Winger, and Louis Gossett Jr. What I think is very ironic in that film is here's a Black Marine NCO, Louis Gossett Jr., trying to teach a young white man how to be an officer. Do you think that was a revolutionary film in that, reg in that regard? 
because Richard Gere's mentor was Louis Gossett Jr. That was the guy who made him an officer and a gentleman. Or is this just Hollywood? It's all the above. And I would say this. If you look at the majority of drill instructors, even in the 21st century, the majority are Black or Latin, and they're all training white officers. And I don't remember when that movie came out in the 80s, I think. Okay, 82. All right, so I'm just a little boy at that time. But I do remember my parents renting the movie and watching it. I couldn't watch it because I was too young. And there was language and other stuff going on in the movie that my parents didn't want me exposed to. And I've never seen the movie from beginning to end, just snippets of it. I think, like you said, is it Hollywood? Is it an ironic twist on race relations in the United States? Maybe it's all all of them, John. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what the filmmaker's intention was. I mean, Richard Gere was very popular to my understanding then. He's still popular now. My mom absolutely thinks he's gorgeous. So these are things that really play into and pull on mental or heartstrings of many Americans to understand. Again, it's, it's, it's highlighting place and space. And I believe Lewis Gossett Jr. is highlighting the space in which Blacks can thrive and grow. And that's enlisted and yelling and only training whereas Richard Gere is being placed in a space that is somewhat sacred, being an officer, right? And, and what it takes to get there. And his role is to be a gentleman, to be an officer. And I do think that I like what you said. I didn't think about it until just now. Until <laughs> just now, Louis Gossett Jr. is the one who's actually refining him, standing these rough edges and making him into that officer and gentleman, right? And his only, and Richard Gere's only pathway to be getting commissioned is only by the approval of Louis Gossett Jr., <laughs> right? This Black Marine staff NCO. And so as I think about it through that lens, I don't know if we've come to some common finality with our evaluation of it, but it does give us something to think about on how we, how the United States, and more importantly, more importantly in this specific situation, how Hollywood wants to portray uh, right, race relations in a, in, in a way that really it kind of can promote and highlight and expose what blacks are really good at and what whites are really good at in the military. Wait, but there's a there's a John. So there's another movie. That I would say is the 21st century version with Tyrese Gibson and uh, Frank James Franco called Annapolis. That is boxing. If you haven't seen it, it's just kind of the reverse way where it's reversed, where there's a black midshipman and they were always former enlisted Marine infantry, right? And they go to the he goes to the Naval Academy because they all have to be Marines, but he goes to the Naval Academy. Tyrese Gibson is the upperclassman and. Uh, James Franco is the uh, the plebe who comes in and th they go through boxing. I won't ruin it, but it kind of, I remember it had some of the same uh, leanings as an officer and a gentleman. Interesting. What What are your future plans? Do you have any book plans, career plans? Yeah, sure. Book plans and then career plans. So book plans, I really am interested in, in doing. I, I, I have a connection. I'd like to write a biography on uh, Michael, General Michael Langley. As far as my career goes, you know, I have to be very careful in answering that <laughs> on these podcasts because these things live on forever. But right now is to graduate the, the Naval War College, which, which I will. And the next step is uh, looking at a joint billet. Uh, I'm in zone for Colonel for 06 this fall. So before Christmas, I'll find out if I was selected for 06 or not. And I'm, I'm not sure if that will determine what direction I'll take because I've really just enjoyed doing the things that I want to do. But the goal is to, to take on orders to, to a joint billet, hopefully um, Cybercom or Marine Forces Cyber or Marine Forces Space, and just expand my, my knowledge and contribute in, in ways that that really do advance, advance the mission of the Marine Corps, especially in this time of the 21st century in a world of cyber and AI. 
that is at breakneck speed, and I believe we really need to keep up with it. Can you just comment a bit about the War College? What's it like oh my gosh. being a student again? <laughs> Usually when you get your PhD, that's it. You get your sheepskin, no more school. <laughs> you are the teacher. Uh, but now you are a student. And uh, what what are your impressions of the place? This may not be popular with what I'm about to say, but I've, I've noticed you asked me about holding a PhD and being a black man and what that means. One of the things that I typically find out with being black and having a PhD and being having been blessed to be successful as a Marine infantry officer and being a Lieutenant Colonel, it invites challenge. And it's very difficult for people to really wrap their mind around where I am in life and how I accomplish these things. So it's often met with challenge. And I felt a, a sting of that when I first got here, my first trimester here. And, and one of the courses I was taking, I just was like, wait, wait, what? All of a sudden, I'm getting a low, I'm on the bottom rung of grades. And I'm like, wait, how is this possible? And never getting an explanation, turning all my work in early. I was really, I've been a really good student, John. Turn all my work in early, have it finished early, and not getting feedback. And this trimester has been changed, but I, in the ASP course, it has been outstanding. And where I'm at right now in strategy and policy has been outstanding. And it's really helped, number one, it's helped me to be more humble, right? I didn't, and I, and I promise you, I didn't come in with an attitude. I came here to learn. I asked to have orders here. So whatever came with it, I knew I had to accept. And I have learned that, right, just because you have these accomplishments, right, and, and I don't ever open my mouth about them, ever. Other people do that. And I always try to tell them to stop because it gives me more trouble, or at least it gives me skyline. Right. It's only valued by those who see you as an asset. They see you as a person who can aid them. And that has been the majority of my experience here. The Naval War College is the Naval War College. It's school, right? In the in the end, it's school. And it's one of these things that right for me to move forward and 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 to have a shot at these higher ranks that you and I've discussed earlier must be accomplished and the best part about this whole place is being among my peer group and learning from them that has been the best the absolute best part are my peers being around all these majors lieutenant colonels and colonels in 06s has been absolutely amazing and they have added more to my knowledge base in such a short period of time on a professional level that I just, I would not have gotten anywhere else. And it's really shifted and, and actually shifted the way that I think and integrated it more with the academics in ways that make it more operationalized and make it more applicable and practical. Well, with that note, I'd like to thank you for participating in these interviews. This is Preble Hall. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.